Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, and as you know, I am your social worker with the microphone. You are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us live every Wednesday morning, 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and then you can listen to us on our archives, which are up in the evening. Also, I have a show, and I keep saying it's a new show, but it's not so new anymore. It's on Thursday mornings on an FM station here in Albany, New York, called The Social Workers, and I'm host of that show. That's from 9 to 10 Eastern Thursday mornings live, and it's also archived after the show. But this morning, I have one guest, and he's going to be talking about, as most of you know, my favorite topic, medical, health care, uh, patient advocacy, uh, Dr. Stephen Z. Houston, MD, and he's in Utica, New York, which is not too far away from where we are. His new book is called Doctor, Your Patient Will See You Now, Gaining the Upper Hand in Your Medical Care, which is what we all need to do right now. Uh, Dr. Houston has a very impressive resume. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about he, who he is. He's a gastroenterologist. He studied at uh, Columbia University and Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He was also an assistant professor of clinical medicine. Now he practices. He has a solo private practice in Utica, New York. I guess it's solo, but he also has has eight other physicians he works with, as well as nurses, nurses practitioners, and physician assistants. So we are going to be talking today about your health care, patient advocacy, um, I think there's a lot in the literature and newspapers on television that give us tips about health literacy. But Dr. Cusin says that it's not simply about living a healthy lifestyle, but it's also learning how to make our own medical decisions or make our medical decisions, good medical decisions, good choices with our physicians and with our uh, medical practitioners. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, doctor. Good morning. Thank you. Great to have you. Okay, so we're going to, this is like a, this seems to be a trend in medicine, and I say a good trend because I've had several other doctors on the show as well who are talking about this. You have to, patients, it's their responsibility to make choices about their health care, and they have to do it in conjunction with their doctors. It's not simply the doctor being the head of the, you know, looking up to him as or her as a god, but we're equals in, in making choices about our own health care. And that's what your book is about, I assume. Um, why did you write this book? I wrote the book as a result of a motor vehicle accident that took me out of practice. And when I was a patient, people would come up and say, what's it like for a doctor to be a patient? My opinions were always respected. I knew my doctors. I knew their lives, their wives, their spouses, their strengths, their weaknesses. I knew everything about them. I fired one right on the spot. My dignity and privacy were always preserved. And so in many ways, I have no idea what it's like to be a patient. And so when I saw the disparity between the kind of care that I got as a physician, which is a great perk, and the care that people around me were getting, I decided to write the book with the idea that you don't have to be a doctor to be treated like one. And the secondary message of the book is an MD degree does not entitle anyone to your care or trust. And you mentioned this idea of doctors being treated like gods. This is so common today in the United States 
people are afraid to challenge their doctors, however politely, to be skeptical, however discreetly. Do you think I want to some idea that we have some sort of power for a minute? Because I do think that has been changing, and maybe it's a result of the baby boomers or the information that we get on the internet. And so patients, I think, do, as a social worker, and I've done a lot of hospital social work, will come armed to their physician's office or the hospital with a lot of information. They just don't know, and you talk about process, they don't know the process, how to access the doctor, talk about what their concerns are, present them with the information they have. They may have the information, but they don't know how to communicate with their physicians or health care providers. Yes, I, I agree. I think there's a, a, a group of patients who simply won't question their doctors, and there's a group of patients who don't know how to and would like to. I think that people who go to their physicians, everyone wants to be their own advocate, but people really don't know how. They don't know where to go for resources. They don't know how to address the problems at hand. People go to their doctors with a Google search, or they go with a medical community uh, printout. These are not rigorous. Doctors can't respond to them. There's so little time. And the idea is to bring your physician industrial-grade resources. Physician, those things that are hit up to now, thought physician-only articles. If you bring your doctor a Google search, you're just going to be further demoted in the eyes of your physician. But if you bring your doctor, and they're available, an article, say, from the Archives of Internal Medicine, which are free, full text, easy to read if you know how. My book goes into how to read a medical article. You can judge your doctor in several ways. Number one, is that doctor receptive to an article that comes from his or her own literature? Is the doctor up to date? Does the doctor know about it? If the doctor doesn't know about it, that's no sin. Is he or she willing to research it and get back to you? Or will you be dismissed out of hand? And so just bringing a legitimate piece of data based on your disease, based on your medication, based on a piece of advice, you'll be elevated and you'll learn a lot about the doctor who's taking care of you. So we go into detail in the book about these resources that are hiding in plain sight all over the place. Uh, the Archives of Internal Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, all their articles are free within a year, full text. PLOS is an online journal. It's public access. You know, you're the first physician who has, has actually said that, at least, not, at least to me, on the air, that yeah, armed with, uh, information is one thing, but the kind of information is, is something else if you want the doctor to respect what you have to say. So it's not just, the, as you say, the Google search. So if we look in your book, and I think it's at the end of the book, isn't it, that you have, just as you described, the specific kind specific places that we can go for information and how to interpret it, real important. Okay, so now we have the information, we get to the office, uh, we're being treated, then what happens? Let's kind of take it through. We can go through uh, the process of how we can become medical decision makers in terms of our own care, becoming our own advocates. Uh, how do we do that? What do we do? How do we start? There are people out there called standard patients. They're professionals. They, in many ways judge medical students, they judge doctors who are recertifying for their boards, and they go into offices sometimes and, and, and judge the experience, and they use certain templates. These are available on my website. It's the first page on the website on how to judge a doctor the way a professional or standard patient does. They just do it for a living. We do it to keep living as patients. <laughs> and 
a doctor. I was a standardized patient at Albany Medical College. Yes. Yeah. And it's very important for patients to become professionals, and they can. Uh, The first first moment you walk into the office, a standard patient is going to judge that office. Some standard patients judge it on the phone call to make the appointment. Is the appointment timely for the problem at hand, or is it unduly delayed? A lot of doctors take pride in the fact they have long waiting lists, and somehow that seems to elevate them in the eyes of many patients. We're so busy. It must be wonderful. Other times, they'll come into the parking lot and walk into the building and eyeball the, eyeball the building and the facility. You can judge a lot about what's going to happen in the back office by how you're treated in the front office. You'll also understand a lot about the privacy that you expect and deserve by looking at the front office and also the respect that the doctor is going to have or not have for you based on the, 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 the very presence of the office, you know, dirty carpets, stained ceilings, overflowing trash bins, computers whose monitors you can clearly see, uh, thereby violating somebody else's privacy. And if your page happens to be up there, your neighbors will see your information. And so judging the front office is something standard patients do, and it's something they rate on a scale, and so can every patient. There's a certain minimum that an office has to present so that you can predict what's going to happen when you need its services in the back office. I think, unfortunately, I think in many of the facilities that I've been in lately, the standard of care for the office itself is not very good. I, I think that very often they are dirty, they're sloppy. Even the, the, the technicians and the, the secretaries and the pe- people who are working for the physician, um, and I've mentioned this before, they're overweight, they're sloppy, they don't dress well. And I would say, unfortunately, that seems to be pretty much across the board in, in many, many facilities. So as you say, you start out, you have... Uh, the people who are caring for you are not well dressed. Uh, I don't mean well dressed, expensively dressed, but they're not. They, they're not neat. They're not tidy. The office is a mess. They're huge offices. They they're run like businesses, but they're not as actually. They're not. If you go into a corporate law firm or a corporate office, they're usually in much better shape than the, the physician's office or a medical facility at a hospital. I agree. When I started my new practice was just a month ago. It's a shared decision center. Part of it was shopping for a building. And I went into a lot of physician buildings that were for sale. As physicians are increasingly becoming employees of hospitals, they're selling their buildings. And I was aghast at what I saw. These are colleagues with whom I dealt for three decades. And I went into these places and I saw exposed wiring and plumbing and ceiling tiles that were stained or not even present, folding chairs in the waiting room. And it just seems to me that even if a doctor isn't an employee or works in a public clinic, they can, with really a very minimal amount of pressure, be able to bring it up to a state that's at least clean, hopefully presentable, and in some ways even pleasing, without a lot of expense. And it shows that amount of respect that you're going to be getting in the back office as well. And yet... Sometimes when you go into these really horrifying offices, I don't understand how patients would tolerate it, but I also find it how, how, how difficult it must be for the physician who walks into that office every day to tolerate it. And yet, when you go into their offices, their private offices, it's a kingdom of silk and mahogany and leather. You know, so that physician has a, a nice 
a nice escape hatch, but the patients sitting in that waiting room and in the exam rooms, which some of them which are dusty, for me, if I was a patient, I'd just stand up and walk out because it's not anything but reflective of a general attitude that could be easily changed. Well, what about the sloppiness of the employees? If my employee, when I was the manager of the group that I founded and four years ago had to leave, and I left with eight physicians, several nurse practitioners, 60 employees, and three offices. If someone wasn't up to code, we'd talk to them. I'd call the office periodically and make sure the phone was answered in a, in a brief period of time. We struggled for years and years on how to deal with a, a medical office's telephone system, which is extremely frustrating. Never really dealt with that as successfully as we would have liked. It seems to be a problem that's insolvable. But a manager or an entrepreneurial business person who happens to run a medical office is going to run it probably tighter than would a huge big box medical clinic where the doctors just feel like employees or a hospital where they are employees increasingly further separating the patient from the doctor. And so a good doctor will look at his staff and he or she will say, this is our dress code, this is our performance code, this is how you address patients, this is how you look, this is how you act. You don't eat lunch while talking to patients. Simple things, courtesy, respect, not hard. People should expect from their physicians and don't what they demand from their Buick dealer down the street when they're buying a car. Look good, treat me with respect, bargain with me if I have a, an issue with price, negotiate, service, telephone, the surroundings have to be commensurate with the price of the object I'm buying or the seriousness of the problem with which I'm dealing. But, you know, you talk about the Buick dealer down the street who's trying to sell you a car. He'll spend half a day with you. The doctor spends 10 or 15 minutes. How do you reconcile that? I mean, you mentioned in your book the doctor spends more time before you get to the office and then after you leave. But when in the interim, when you're there, he or she spends very little time with you. So how can you, this concept of shared decision-making, how do you fit that into, like, speaking with the physician for 10 minutes, um, and, and maybe we should define shared decision-making. Shared decision-making is something common in Canada, common in Europe, and only recently emerging here in the United States. Dartmouth has a huge shared decision center. So does the Mayo Clinic in the Pacific Northwest. I've opened what I think is the only shared decision center that's regionally based, unaffiliated with the university, um, and uh, freestanding. It's a situation where that 12 minutes, Catherine, is simply not going to allow patients to reach decisions that suit their goals and their priorities. That 12 minutes will not allow patients to see the full spectrum of alternatives for any treatment, any condition, any screening problem, any diagnostic procedure, or any invasive procedure. And I used to be told if anyone uses the word every or never in a sentence, you can't believe it, but believe this. (laughs) Every medical decision has alternatives. Controversies exist everywhere. Very little is settled in medicine, and we see it on the daily news, the evening news every night. Wine used to be terrific for women. Take a class or two every evening. Now it's a cancer risk. So there is no truth. 
there are just versions of it. And See, I think you need that, to repeat that. That needs does, to be repeated because problem. I think patients go into, uh, can, patients, consumers, whatever you want to call us, go into the office with the expectation that there is an answer. And I think you just gave us the answer. There really isn't an answer, and it's been described. Well, doctors will say to me, well, it's best practices, best practices at the time. Um, you know, I remember when my kids were growing up, it was antibiotics, antibiotics for ear infections, for anything that they had. And I remember questioning, saying, I'm not so sure they need an antibiotic. Let, you know, you know they, they, they would have a virus. Would, you know, antibiotics don't work for viruses. They work for bacteria. But we give them an antibiotic just in case they get a bacteria. And I was always questioning that. So half the time I would do what I thought was right, and the other half I would do what I, you know, they told me to do. Well, that's really not good medical shared decision-making, but that was... I think that's not necessarily not typical. Well, if you go to a shared decision center, well, come to mine, I'll spend at least an hour and usually an hour and a half, and we'll go through computer programs that are made for patient decision-making. They're non-impartial, non-biased, non-commercial, no advertisements on the screen. And they go through the entire spectrum between, for any given problem, doing absolutely nothing, Two at the other end of the spectrum doing the latest blockbuster, breakthrough, high-tech, invasive, and right, whatever so patient chooses up to right. that. I've never heard of that before. Give us an, take us through. Give us an example, a typical example of a diagnosis that you would use, that you would go through this process with the patient. Any decision that's going to last a lifetime or affect your lifeline, or be expensive, will cause you anxiety. Any diagnosis, I think, of cancer, which I also think needs a second opinion. What a shared decision center does is allow you to understand the first opinion and have it be tailored to your own particular needs. If, if for example, someone has angina, chest pain due to coronary artery disease, mm-hmm. if you go to a cardiac surgeon, they'll recommend a coronary artery bypass. If you go to a cardiologist, they may recommend a an angioplasty or a stent. If you go to a, your medical doctor, that medical doctor may simply recommend aspirin or a statin drug. How can they all be right? They all are. They all quote their own literature. And yet, what's right for the individual? What's right for you, Catherine, may not be right for me. And what's right for me today may not be right for me five years from now. And so patients have to make a decision regarding trade-offs, quality of life versus its length, risk tolerance, risk aversion. I mean, simple issue of mammograms. Mammograms are right now kind of up in the air as regards their benefit. It doesn't mean women should not get them. It means they should know what they're getting into. The same for PSAs in men. One-third of men have a PSA drawn without their permission, without their knowledge. And all of a sudden, they're in a three-ring circus they didn't even buy a ticket to. Over-diagnosis, over-therapy, expense, psychological trauma. And they didn't even know what they were getting into. So I think even the decision about having a mammogram may, for some people who want to make a, a clear decision, prompt a visit and a discussion. And then it lands up becoming a larger discussion regarding screening in general. Thousands of people started that racist 
line, and when the gun goes off, they're all rushing, and they're all trying to be that one person out of 2,000, perhaps, that may benefit from a mammogram, or that one person out of 100 who may benefit from the statin, or that one person in 2,000 who may benefit from an aspirin to prevent a heart attack. But, Doctor, you have chosen, I mean, all three of those topics, I'm, uh, I just think are just, I mean, they are just right out there. It's really difficult. The, I always feel that the physicians, at least the ones that I go to, that they are, they've jumped on the bandwagon. Mammograms for one. There's no option. Like, you need mammograms. And, you know, 80%, as I read, 80% of them will take mammograms. 80% of, of the mammograms that are done you are you get a false positive, 80%, and then you also are radiating yourself. I mean, breast tissue is susceptible to radiation, which causes cancer, and then you're mashing your breast down, which I don't, I, that in itself, intuitively, I don't think is a good thing to do. All of those things, no one's ever wanted to discuss it with me. I think I have to come to your clinic. Well, if you take, there's cancers that I call in the book, cancers that dare not speak their names. Some cancers... Once you say the word cancer, people are going to sign up and lie down for anything. But there are some cancers, and breast and prostate would be the most easy to come to mind. Some cancers are like a tortoise in a box. Other cancers are like a rabbit in a box. And still others are like a snail that's sitting on the floor. Breast and, breast and prostate come to mind. For example, if you have a tortoise in a box and a rabbit in a box and a snail on the floor and you walk out of the room, when you come back in, that hair is gone. The rabbit's gone. And that's true of some breast cancers and it's true of some prostate cancers. And all the screening in the world is never going to help them because that rabbit is going to be out of the box and gone in between mammograms and in between PSAs. But other cancers are like a tortoise in the box of the prostate and of the breast. You can walk out of that room and come back in six months. That tortoise is still going to be in the box. And a lot of people who get a diagnosis of prostate cancer and even some breast cancers, they're more cellular curiosities that don't require therapy or require very minimal therapy or require very careful follow-up. Others are like a snail on the floor. You walk out of the room, you come back in in a few weeks, a couple of months, that snail will be in the room, won't make much progress because they're very indolent. They're not going anywhere fast. You don't need a mammogram every 15 minutes. You don't need a mammogram every year because a lot of breast cancers are like the snail on the floor or the tortoise in the box. And the ones that are the rabbit in the box, you can have a mammogram every 15 minutes. You're going to still miss it because some cancers are different than others. Some cancers, the second they show up, they're already spread. And other cancers are just going to be indolent. And knowing the difference and appreciating the difference will allow people to make better decisions regarding their cancers for prostate cancer. Now there's a types of cancer that surgery nor radiation is even perhaps needed if patients are willing to be subject to what's called watchful waiting. And believe me, the surgery and the radiation for prostate cancer for a man is as debilitating psychologically as is a mastectomy for a woman. And so shared decision centers, whether they exist in my community or my region or at a university center, or people decide to educate themselves online, nothing I've said is not available online, 
and nothing is so complex that it can't be understood. It's just no how to. Yeah, but you, go. as the physician, as the teacher, as you descri- and you, as the advisor, and you describe yourself as all of those things, need to take all that information, put that together. Yes, it's out there, but and and as you say, involve the your patients or patients in this shared decision making. Um, let's take uh, I, then. Let's. I want to ask you about the statins because uh, you know just what you just said to me. Uh, no, uh, no physician has ever said has ever sat down and talked to me about. You know, uh, well, the mammograms in particular, um, in that way, um, in, in terms of options and in terms of the can- different types of cancers, et cetera. Okay, what about statins? You know, it seems to me with statins, one size fits all. Statins for everybody. Statins for men, statins for women, statins if you're 38, statins if you're 88. What about that? Statins in the water, like fluoride. Uh, everybody should be on a statin uh, the way it seems to be playing out in society now. But for someone who's never had a heart attack and someone who has no particular risk factors for it and someone whose cholesterol, and by the way, there is no normal cholesterol. What's defined as a normal cholesterol is in constant flux. There's no normal blood sugar. There's no normal blood pressure. There's no normal cholesterol. The threshold keeps changing and is moving in a direction where lower and lower numbers of blood pressure are now considered abnormal, lower blood sugar are considered abnormal where they weren't before, and lower cholesterols are considered now all of a sudden abnormal. And even when some of these numbers are normal, they're getting so close to what we're now calling abnormal. There's a whole new category of disease now. It's not hypertension. It's pre-hypertension. It's if you're not diabetic, not just quite yet, you're now pre-diabetic. I had a friend who came home and said, they told me I was pre-diabetic. And he said, I said to the doctor, what the hell is pre-diabetic? I mean, I'm I'm not diabetic. I mean, what are you talking about? (laughs) Someone who does not have diabetes. Right. Right. And this is the medicalization of our society, the commercialization of medicine based on big pharma's emphasis on creating disease where there is none, uh, and uh, cashing in big on scaring people. So is it all about the bottom line? I mean, it's all about the money? For the uh, pharmaceutical industry, it's largely about the bottom line. And for doctors, the bottom line is very important. For some, it's a consuming interest. And for others, it's, of course, a living. It's a business, and doctors know it. And for hospitals, it, which are businesses and present themselves as being really nothing else, in real, in realistically, it is the bottom line. And that's why people are, have to be sicker to get in, and they're quicker on the way out because the reimbursement systems are tough on the hospital. And so patients have to know it's a business. People should know there's conflicts of interest. People should know there's profit motive. If a doctor owns a CAT scan machine, for example, or even owns an interest in a CAT scan machine, and you go to that physician you're going to be four to seven times more likely to get a CAT scan than if you go to a physician who has no financial interest. And so, and and this is no small thing, 2% of the cancers in this country are estimated due to diagnostic ionizing radiation from CAT scans and things like that. And so people have to be aware of this, should be aware of it, can be aware of it. And a statin, for example, if 
you've never had a, if you are at no particular risk and your cholesterol is at a certain level, a hundred people have to take that statin for five years in order to have one person escape what usually is a non-fatal cardiac event. So it's, um, it's a decision people have to make. It's not a no-brainer. There are very few things in medicine are no-brainers. But most patients, I mean, they need to read your book, obviously, because they're not, in, I mean, it just, I mean, the, the, the things that we've touched on during this past half hour, many of those, and I, I'm really an advocate of the kinds of things that you are saying, but uh, I'm just a layperson, but that last uh, point that you made about the CAT scans, and I, I think this applies to my dentist who has wants to take x-rays. I have nothing wrong with my teeth except that I have them cleaned every, well, they want to do it every three months, and I only let them do it twice a year, and anyway, but always wanting to take x-rays, looking for what, I'm not sure, and everything I read about x-rays, uh, you know, I'm a baby boomer, I've had x-rays for umpteen years, I've, it, I've you know, it, the, there's a cumulative effect to x-rays, you're more vulnerable as you get older, but when they want to give me x-rays in the office, and I know this is just anecdotal, uh, they'll tell me that it's, well, it's no more than the x-rays you'll get from the sun. Okay, well, I don't know what that means because then you're doubling the amount of radiation or no more than the radiation you get from the sun. So that's not a too good of an argument. And second of all, I know they have the machine they need to use it, and they never ask me about what my history is in terms of how much I have been radiated. So it's be, it, the, the decision to, to x-ray me is based on I'm not sure what. Is that a kind of example that you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. But take, for example, a CAT scan. Look at the, our president. He went for a physical examination about a year and a half ago. He had a, a CT scan of his heart to look for coronary artery calcium. And he had a CT colonoscopy as a way of preventing colon cancer. Each of those tests were the equivalent of 600 chest x-rays. And so the president got himself a whopping dose of radiation that day. He got two tests that are simply not recommended by any legitimate observer as a way of preventing coronary artery disease or colon cancer. They're out there, but they're a tremendous profit uh, generating engine. And the president, as much as I admire and like him, set, without his knowledge, a very bad example to the public because this seems to be the, the way to go. Coronary artery calciums, CT angiographies, CT colonoscopies, total body scans. These are ubiquitous. They're all over the place. People are line up for them and think they're doing themselves a benefit. And because these tests are so incredibly sensitive, not only are you radiated, they pick up things that are of absolutely no significance. And they comment on them. The radiographer is going to read it, and then he or she is going to say, there's a little spot on the liver. And they're not going to commit themselves, and they're going to recommend, let's do A, B, C, D, and E to find out more about that little spot. And almost invariably, it means nothing. We call them incidental omas. They're just incidental findings that people worry about tumors. And they're just incidental omas. I want to take a, a short. I, I want to take that's a that's a, a great point. I, I want to take a break now, but I just want to follow up with that for two seconds because isn't it the same? You know, you look at your skin, you get all kinds of marks and bumps and stuff on that mean that are innocuous, right? But if you were just because they're on the inside, doesn't mean that they're they're uh, 
that there's anything wrong with you. If they were on the inside, it would be the same thing. They would be innocuous. But um, to me, that's kind of the example of what you're talking about. Yes, but, indeed. Even yeah. on the outside. Yeah. Uh, Gilbert Welch wrote a book called Overdiagnosis. Buy mine first, but his is terrific. And he's at <laughs> right, Dar- buy Dr. Cusin's first. But first, let's just take a break before sure. you talk about him. Dr. Stephen Cusin, uh, Doctor, Your Patient Will See You Now is his new book, Gaining the Upper Hand in Your Medical Care. Uh, you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. The doctor and I are going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show every Thursday, every Wednesday morning. I think it's the day straight, uh, from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And joining me this morning, if you are just joining us, is Dr. Stephen Z. Cusin, MD. He's from Utica, New York, uh, gastroenter- gastroenterologist and author of Doctor, Your Patient Will See You Now, Gaining the Upper Hand in Your Medical Care. Lots of issues here. So, um, Doctor, before we took the break, well, you were you said buy your book, obviously, but then there's somebody else you referred to, another physician who's written a book on this topic. Who is that? Gilbert Welch. He's part of a trio of Stephen Meloshin, Lisa Schwartz, and Gilbert Welch. These are the gurus of overdiagnosis, overtherapy, 
medical literacy, medical numeracy, and enabling patients to become better judges of what's important to them, better judges of their doctors, and better educated consumers. People will spend more time researching their next vacation than they will their next surgery. People will look at a flat-screen TV, and they'll be able to tell you about its circuitry, the price, they'll read magazines about that flat-screen TV. And yet, all of these TVs are not just all made in China. They're made in one campus in a village in a city in China. And, no, and people actually think there's a difference. But when they look at hospitals, they think of us all as having... Well, they're all the same brand. Every hospital is the same as one another. Every but, doctor is the same as one another. But can I stop you there? Because I think there's a whole, that the piece to that is, I mean, if I make a mistake and buy the wrong TV, okay, you know, too bad, I spent too much money, it's not doesn't do what I want it to do. But there's that fear factor when it comes to your health. I don't want to deal with it. I'm too frightened. So I just have to say, well, you know, this doctor is good. He's good enough. He's as good as, as you say, the, the next guy or the next woman. So I don't want to deal with my own fear, my own vulnerability, that I could make a mistake about my health care, that there are choices. I'd rather think that there aren't any choices. Um, I think that comes into play and why people kind of step back. And, and as you say, they don't, if they have to have surgery, they don't research where and who because it's too frightening. I mean, isn't that a piece of it? It's, it's a large piece. It's unfortunate because people will suffer. People will die. People will become disabled. People will go bankrupt. People will become psychologically impaired as a function of the damage that's done. And it's really not hard. I devote a whole section of the book on how to choose a doctor and another section on how to choose a hospital. And it's not difficult. It just requires some work, and it's not a lot of work. How Porpoises and dolphins and alligators and crocodiles and crows and ravens, they all look alike. You can't tell the difference. And yet they're different species. Doctors look alike, talk alike, sound alike. They give the same spiel. And yet the choice between one versus another can be the difference between life and death, health and debility. And so is a choice between a good hospital and a bad hospital. All right, let's, take time. let's just take a few minutes and say how to choose a doctor, how to choose a hospital. Let's, how do you choose? They, all, they look alike, they sound alike, they, you know, you, so give us like five different things or three different bullet points. I'm going to, I need a doctor, I need to find a doctor in internal medicine. What do I, what am I looking for? What's the difference? There are three things. Brains, which is the most important, can't do without them. Communication and empathy. Now with communication and empathy, you can make your doctor, and my book goes into it in detail, how to make your doctor a better communicator. And you can make your doctor more empathic. But brains, you're not going to give your doctor a higher IQ. There's nothing you can do about that. And so brains becomes the most important thing. It's the only thing you cannot do without. It's bad to have a doctor who doesn't communicate. It's bad to have a doctor who doesn't care about you. But it's tragic to have a doctor who's stupid. And doctors, like everything else, come in all varieties. Most doctors are bright. It's a bright, uh, it's a bright profession. It's a high IQ profession. But within that profession, there are some doctors who are brighter than others, some who aren't, and some who are really quite gifted. And you can find the gifted doctors, and those are the ones who are, have higher IQs, and higher IQs mean better job performance. And it's not even that difficult. Just Google your doctor's name, 
will go to the office and take a look at the handwriting on the wall. Where do they go to college? Where do they go to medical school? Where do they train? And then you go to the U.S. News and World Report, and each of those institutions can be ranked. And if your doctor has gone to a really good college and was smart enough in that really good college to get into a great medical school, and then within that great medical school withstood the incredible competition to get into a good training program in a highly desirable specialty, then that doctor is going to be smart. doesn't mean the doctor is going to be nice, but you can bet the doctor will be smart versus a doctor who might have gone to a wonderful college and had a downward trend or someone who fought the current and went to a, a, a kind of an average college and had an upward, an upward uh, arc going to a wonderful medical school and a terrific training program. You can determine how smart your doctor is by where they train because the competition is so severe and the filtering is so precise that you would think that most doctors, by the time they get out, are almost genotypically identical. You almost can't tell the difference because they've been through such terrible filters. And so, yeah, that's the way to find if you have a smart doctor. All right, so we're taking the brains. That, that, that probably right. is the simplest. and then you can you know, bring your doctor that article, and you can learn about that doctor's uh, intelligence and their willingness to research for you based on the response to bringing in a legitimate piece of data and saying, what do you think? My diabetes medicine causes bladder cancer. I just read about that in the archives. Here's the article. What do you think? And that'll tell you how, uh, how smart your doctor is, and it'll also move on to the next topic, how communicative they are. Because some people are very bright or super bright or, you know, way over on that bell-shaped curve, right. but they don't know how to communicate. So if they don't know how to communicate or give that in with their patient, then even the brightness isn't going or their intelligence isn't going to help because as a patient you're not going to make an informed decision because your doctor can't communicate with you. Quite right. Yeah. It's like having a library with tens of thousands of books and the door's locked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going to have that flat screen TV we talked about, but no audio. You still want brains, but communication is necessary, although it's not sufficient, because if your doctor's not bright, they're going to babble all sorts of nonsense at you, and you, you, know, and you may mistake communication skills with intelligence, and they exist in two separate areas of the brain. But communication is important. Half the doctors and patients, when they have a visit, sometimes can't even agree as to why each other is there. And I, we talk about it in the book. I talk about unvoiced needs. Patients come to the doctor, and they have an agenda, but it's not being followed through upon because patients don't make it as clear as they might as to why they're there. And they're walking out into the car and heading it back home with a prescription they neither wanted nor asked for nor expected. And so patients should go to the doctor and stimulate conversation and make sure their needs are being met by giving them a written agenda. It doesn't have to be long, just bullet points. Why so, I'm you know, here. you talk about the doctor being smart, and he's in a, a you know, really bright doctors. But what about you also have a wide variety of patients in terms of how smart they are, how well-educated, what their backgrounds are. And so does that, that also comes into play when you're talking about communication. I mean, there are certain patients that may not, well, first they may be intimidated by the physician, others who aren't, and who have the same, you know, socioeconomic background or education or whatever. So how does that come into play? Because different patients aren't just patients either. They're not just all the same. They may look alike and they may all be sick, but they also come from very different kinds of backgrounds. How do you 
put that in the mix. Absolutely. Half the doctors you meet are not going to be as bright as the other half, and half the patients who come to doctors are not going to be as bright as the other half. And medical transactions are carried out on a graduate level from the point of view of the literature and the speech and, and the language. And so if you, as a patient, are not going to be able to identify yourself as being, you know something, I'm not terribly smart. Most people estimate themselves as being average or above average. You know, it's kind of like the Peter Principle and you know, Lake Wobegon. But if you are a relative of someone who you recognize as either being incapacitated by poor literacy, age, cognitive abnormalities, it's your obligation to go with your relative loved one or friend to that doctor's office and be that patient's representative. You don't have to say, hey, I'm with stupid, but you could say, hey, doc, none of us are Einsteins here in this room. Why don't you make it a little simpler for us? Or can you slow down? It's a little fast. Or before you leave the office doctor, can you ask my friend to repeat back what you said, and which is the best way of doing things and which is hardly ever uh, offered by doctors because of time constraints. And so, yes, some of us aren't bright. Some of us aren't literate. Some of us, most of us aren't, have, have no idea about numeracy and, and math and probabilistic thinking. And they need someone who they can refer to who can at the time of the visit or if needed after. And again, the shared decision-making is a rising movement here in this country. It'll be years before it's all over the place where things can be made understandable, but it is the responsibility of the family. I, I, in the book, I talk about an 85-year-old fella who goes to his doctor and doesn't relay the information he has kidney disease, and even though the doctor asks. And it was documented that patient knew well that he had kidney disease and for some reason simply didn't offer it when the doctor inquired. And that led to a whole string of tests, which led to a very unhappy outcome he had a CAT scan with dye, which killed his diseased kidneys that were being followed for years by other doctors. Now, this 85-year-old fellow had a family who knew exactly about his medical history. When I'm 85 years old, I'm not going to a doctor alone. When I'm 85 years old, I'm not going to a movie alone. <laughs> and so you, you wouldn't believe how many people of advanced age come completely on their own. And these are people who don't necessarily have cognitive abnormalities. But they're so passive, and they're so reluctant, being old school, to speak up. And or they're they are not as bright and, as and another 85-year-old. Or they do have mild cognitive abnormalities, as many 85-year-old people do, that are very subtle, and they're not going to be picked up in an office visit. And so some people just have to go with their relatives and friends to every doctor visit or attend their friends and loved ones in the hospital 24-7. That's good advice. That's great advice. And, and uh, we only have a few, well, we have a few minutes left, but I want to get in. Okay, that's communication, and, and, and that's a good, response, good answer to that question. What about empathy? Do you need an empathetic doctor? Or do you, oh, I've always said, and I've never had surgery, but, you know, a surgeon, does he need to be empathetic, or does he just have to be a good surgeon? You know, the cardiac surgeon can do, he, I don't have to talk to him, but I need to be able to talk to the cardiologist, or is that just old school? Because I, that I need to, you know, have to have somebody to communicate with and somebody who empathizes with me. The surgeon, not necessarily. Is that true? You'd like to have a doctor, ideally, who cares about you as well as for you. 
and that's nice. And some some doctors tend to be more empathic than others. But basically, doctors can't feel your pain. You don't want them to feel your pain. You don't want them to be empathetic in the true definition of what empathy is. Because in the course of our careers, we poison you, we burn you, we cut you, we give you medications that are almost invariably going to be associated with side effects, chemotherapy, which is poison, radiation, which does burn. And we have to separate ourselves from what we're doing to a degree to be able not to be caught up in it. And they've done these studies where doctors have functional MRIs of their brains while people, while looking at screens of people being pricked or pointed or burned, and the areas of empathy don't light up as they would for you if you were watching that movie. But doc, the good, really good doctors understand that patients expect something that shows that they care. And the book I call it Genuine Artifice. What does it take for a doctor to raise his eyebrows, lower his eyes, put his chin down to his chest, his hand on your shoulder, and put out a little sigh and say, this is tough, isn't it? That didn't take very long. It doesn't have to be genuine, but it is genuine because the doctor understands it's needed, even if he or she doesn't feel it. It's when you care enough to send the second best. It's, a, it's not a hallmark moment. <laughs> but it's lovely when you see it. It's rare to get it. And it's so easy to deliver. And when patients see it or feel it, they've got something special and should honor it. Yeah. But well, well, I think really what you're saying is it's just enough. It's, it's enough. It, that's all you enough. need in terms of the empathy. And it reminds me of this film that I, I saw recently. Maybe you've seen it, 50-50. Uh, that, the first doctor in that movie, I wouldn't have believed, existed on the planet Earth. But through my research and over 30 years in medicine, those kind of people who are cold, detached, uncaring, even cruel, they exist. Thank God there are not a lot of them, but I don't think there's a listener out there who hasn't dealt with one of them. Yeah, and if, if somebody hasn't seen the film, this particular doctor was giving a cancer diagnosis to a young, a 27-year-old man without flinching. It was as if he were reading the... I don't want to, well, stock market, right? I mean, it was, it was horrific, but, um, yeah, and I don't think that is a unique situation. Um, no, sadly not. Yeah, sadly not, exactly. Um, well, in just a, well, well we've tr- I'm trying to cover as much as I can in terms of the book. Um, this whole concept of, of shared decision-making, is, are you the only one, or do you have the only practice doctor here in New York State that, that, that is involved in this. I know you've been associated with Columbia University, Columbia Presbyterian. Um, do any of the major hospitals or facilities in New York City share in this shared decision-making? Large academic centers will, and I know Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I trained, has one, and I'm sure Columbia does. Large academic centers within the hospital, hospital-related practices in, in these you know, national centers, they may send you home with a video and give you good information in printed format. And when you go home, you can view it online or you can put the CD in your computer and you can watch it. And this exists. It's not common. If you have a hospital that offers you that, you should value it. You'll certainly get it at Dartmouth. Uh, you'll certainly get it at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, 
But I may be, and it frightens me a little bit at times, Catherine, I may be way ahead of the curve on this because the, the arc of my life has kind of led me to this kind of decision to start a regional shared decision center. But I'm expecting over time, and I am the only one who does this in, as a freestanding, regionally based, non-affiliated, I'm not affiliated with the university. I'm the only one in the state. But I expect, hopefully, over time, either it'll be more or that people will come from New York to Buffalo and from the Canadian border to Binghamton, because nothing would make me happier than to spend an hour, an hour and a half with people going over things that frighten them, confuse them, leave them feeling abandoned. But there'll be others, and, and again, you can do this on your own, uh, because being educated is different than being informed. People think that being informed is enough, doing a Google search or being on WebMD. Those things give you lists. But being educated presents to you the entire spectrum of the safest, the most specific, the most sensitive tests that can be done for a problem versus the other end of the spectrum, which is the untried, unproven, unnecessary. And people can find and know the difference, either in a shared decision center, and you're welcome to come over, or finding the resources that I list in my chapter, my first chapter in the bibliography, uh, and best websites, and find them on their own, or enlist someone to help them through it. Because you can read a medical article, and, and I go into detail on how people can read a medical article. I call it bottom readers. All doctors are bottom readers. We don't understand these articles either. <laughs> the statistics are completely Greek to us. And most of us skip right to the bottom. Bottom readers. What's the conclusion? What does it say? Get me out of here. Get me to the next chapter. Yeah, the bottom line. What's the bottom line? Right. And what we, would we you skip say, the top. Doctor, what, okay, where do concierge doctors fall into this whole piece? They run the gamut between being extremely greedy and lazy because they want a lot of money and they don't want to work hard for it. Or they're people who are completely fed up with the system as it exists, the hassles that insurance companies deliver, difficulty of balancing a schedule and having a phone system where hundreds of people are calling in a day, and they say, wait, I don't want to take care of 5,000 people. I'd like to take care of 500. But each of those 500 is going to have to pony up a big amount of money for me to make it worthwhile financially as well as to provide a service. But it doesn't say anything about the quality of the doctor, the doctor's intelligence. Uh, they're going to be better communicators because you're paying for it. And they're going to be more empathic even if they mean it or don't because you're paying a big price. Sometimes it could be a couple thousand bucks a year. But in some places, if you want to have a concierge position, you've got to pony up $20,000. And that doctor will give you his or her cell phone. You're guaranteed a visit within 24 hours. Some will accompany you to your specialty visits and sit there and be your representative in front of a gastroenterologist or cardiologist. It's a wonderful service, but it's not for most listeners. You'd like to have concierge type of medicine without the price. And you can find it. You can demand it. And if you don't get it, you can search for it because it makes a difference. At my experience, and this, of course, again, is anecdotal, that you get that kind of you know, shared decision-making and this personalized service 
at the top medical centers, and you mentioned a couple, Memorial Sloan Kettering, we mentioned Columbia Presbyterian, and I've had that experience at Mass General. Yes. Uh, you know, one of my kids had eye surgery, and this surgeon, I called him up five years later to get a recommendation for another doctor, and he said to me, he answered his own phone, <laughs> and he said to me, how's, you know, how's, how's your son? And he knew his name, and I thought, oh, my God, my local pediatrician, when I call up for information, doesn't remember the kid's name, right? So uh, maybe that's an example of what you're talking about. Most doctors can, though few do, and I don't want to set myself up as some sort of paradigm, but if I had a patient come to the office, I'd write down the phonetic pronunciation of the name so I'd never mispronounce it. And I'd always have a birth date. My office automatically would send a, a, a birthday card. And if in the course of a medical history, I learned that they had a child who was graduating from college. I'd mention it on the next visit. It doesn't take much to write it down. And it's nice. Does it mean that I care in my heart of hearts about it? Well, no, but it means that the patient's going to feel that there's a different level of care here, and it's not hard. It's, in fact, so ridiculously easy that its absence is, in my opinion, quite stunning. Exactly. We have 30 seconds left, and uh, I've really gone over the time because I've so much enjoyed talking to you. I think you're doing just really wonderful, wonderful work, uh, shared decision-making, and the name of Dr. Stephen Cousin's book is Doctor, Your Patient Will See You Now, Gaining the Upper Hand in Your Medical Care. You can buy it at online, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere, and we'll have to have you on the show again. Thanks so much, Doctor. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to Voice America, Variety.com, and World Talk Radio. I uh, hope you enjoyed the morning. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.